Please open in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 18. John chapter 1, 1 to 18. Hear now God's holy, inerrant, and inspired Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Thus far, God's holy word. Let's pray. Our God, we ask that as we come to your word, that you would enable us to understand. Give us the illumination of your Holy Spirit, that we would be able to take your word, believe it, and apply it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, living here in Colorado and wanting to hike on some trails and having a a two-year-old, I was introduced to a new invention, uh, an invention that I was not aware of until wanting to hike with him, the baby shoulder carrier, toddler shoulder carrier. You've probably seen these. Maybe some of you remember riding in one of these. So you take this contraption, strap it on yourself, and then your toddler can sit in the seat on your shoulders. Well, what I would do is is I would add this thing to myself, add this piece of metal and fabric, and I would add that to myself to elevate my son. There was nothing that changed in my nature as a human being by adding that to myself. I didn't become like half man, half machine. What I did was add something to myself that enabled me to be united in a different way with my son. That's an imperfect analogy, but I want you to think about that as the incarnation of the Son of God. Anselm, when he's writing in the 11th century, says this, in the incarnation, there is no lowering of the deity. The deity doesn't change. God's nature doesn't change. There's no lowering of the deity, but the nature of man is exalted. And so the Son of God, as he takes to himself human nature, 
not a baby carrier, but as he takes to himself human nature, that enables him to unite himself with us as human beings. And the reason this is important for us to understand through this passage is because what this speaks about our union with him and how we become children of God. And so what I want you to see from this passage today is that the son of God became man so that man might become a child of God. The son of God became man so that man might become a child of God. First, we'll look at the nature of the son in verses one to five. You see that he is by nature God, the same in substance. In verse one, the word was God. He was God himself. He was in the beginning. So, and notice a little bit later in verse 14, whenever John is talking about what John the Baptist says, he says, you know, John the Baptist, this is the guy John the Baptist said, ranks before me because he was before me, because he existed before creation. Jesus, the son who is the word in verse one, this is who John's talking about, is God himself. But notice that he's also a separate person, that the son, though he is the same in substance as the father, he is a separate person from the father. That's why John says he was with God. He not only is God, but he is also with God, a separate person. Now, what this verse begins to open up to us is our understanding of the nature of God as triune. Now, the the Bible doesn't use the word Trinity, but we use that for shorthand to say that God is one in substance and three in persons, that there are personal properties that distinguish the Father from the Son and the Son from the Spirit and each one in between. The Father, by his personal property, is unbegotten. The personal property of the Son is to be eternally begotten or eternally generated from the Father. And the personal property of the Holy Spirit is to eternally proceed from the Father and Son. They are the same in substance, but distinguished by different personal properties. You can see similarly in the, uh, in the operation of salvation. All three persons of the Trinity are at work in salvation, but it is the property of the Father to be the, the planner or the ordainer. It's the property of the Son to be the accomplisher of redemption. It's the property of the Spirit to be the applier of redemption in people's lives. Now, all three persons are at work in any operation of God, but they are the same in substance and three in persons. Now, as we try to wrap our minds around that, it's hard for us, isn't it? Because we're used to being human beings, one in substance and one in person. I know what it's like to be a single person of a single substance. And when we attempt to use the word substance even for God, all we know is created substance. God is uncreated. So even when we try to explain it, we fall short. It doesn't mean we can't understand God, but there is a, there's a limit to our understanding. Lots of pseudo-Christian cults, uh, the world will say that this, this thing about God being one in three doesn't make sense. Well, part of the reason it doesn't make sense to us is because we're just thinking about ourselves. 
we're thinking about the image bearer, us, rather than the creator. Think about a train, the difference between a train and a picture of a train. And that helps us to begin a little bit to understand the difference between God and us. Now, think of a, a, you know, a crayon drawing of a train or just a photograph of a train. You could explain all of the differences between the real thing and the image. Well, you know, the image, it's two-dimensional. It's not three-dimensional. The, the real thing, you shovel coal into it. It can carry people. It rides on rails. The vast difference that there is between an image of a train and the train itself is finite though, isn't it? We can actually measure every single difference between the two. But there is an immeasurable difference between the image of God that we are and God himself. He is infinite. And so this is also dependent on our senses. Like we're able to cognitively look at a picture and understand the difference, but all of our senses of sight, sound, and smell, everything that we could touch about a train is all created. We're attempting to explain someone who is uncreated. I want this to hopefully help us begin to have a little glimpse at the incomprehensibility of God. That in his nature, while we can apprehend some things about him, we cannot fully comprehend him. That he is incomprehensible. And that this, our, our inability to fully understand God being one in three is a good thing. Because if we could fully understand him, he would not be God. It's a good thing that God is bigger than we are. We submit to his word that says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He is one and three. The other thing about the nature of the son, if you look in verse three, you see that he is the creator. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, if Jesus, if the son were a created entity, a created being, it doesn't make any sense for the scripture to say that without him was not anything made that was made. The son has to be the maker of all things. He can't be made himself for that verse to make sense. In Colossians 1 says, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible. The other thing about the nature of the son you see is that he is light. By nature, the, the light shines in the darkness, verse four and five. Uh, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. John as an author, both in the gospel of John and in his letters to churches, he uses the simplest language. Uh, uh, seminary students start with John for Greek. He uses the simplest language with the most abstract, packed concepts. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. What John is getting at with Jesus being light is that he is righteous and that he is truth-giving. When Jesus is talking later in John 3, you know, he says that the light came into the world, talking about himself, but men love darkness 
rather than light. And so the contrast between light and darkness, between Jesus and the world is being righteous versus unrighteous. So when John says Jesus is light, he's talking about his truth-giving nature and his righteousness. Now, all this about the nature of the Son, this is contrary not just to all the pseudo-Christian cults, but this is contrary to the explanation that the world gives to Jesus, isn't it? Jesus was simply a great teacher. He was the greatest man that ever lived. He's a really good guy. But that's not what John is saying here. John is saying that he is very God. He is not just the greatest man. He is the God man, that he is by nature divine in and of himself. And What does the world say? Jesus said some good things. He's got some good truth to give, but I don't buy everything he says. Well, the scripture says that Jesus is not just one source of truth. He is the only source of truth. This is the true nature of the son. The other thing we see here is that the light exposes the darkness. That truth exposes darkness darkness. When you're uh, in your home, if you're in your bedroom, wherever you, have to, wherever you have to clean up, what do you do whenever you need to clean up the room? You turn on the light, right? It exposes the mess. You can't clean it up without turning on the light. This is what Jesus does as the light, as the truth giver, as it is applied to you, applied to the world. It exposes the darkness, It exposes the cluttered mess that's in the world. And so just as we need to turn on the light to clean up the darkness, to to clean up the mess in the room, we need the light of Jesus to clean up the mess in our own selves, don't we? Well, not only is the nature of the sun seen in these verses, what we also see is the nature of the incarnation, the nature of God becoming flesh. We see in verse 14 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John, in these verses, now our English translation says that the word became flesh. John actually uses a word that is referring to the Old Testament tabernacle. And what John literally says is the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Now, the tabernacle, if you remember, is God's mobile home of the Old Testament. So the tabernacle was a tent. Now, of course, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. But there is a special presence of God that was in the tabernacle. It was this mobile tent that had an outer, an inner courtyard, a holy place, and the holy of holies. And inside the holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant, where the presence of God dwelt. And what John is saying, where that presence of God was in the Old Testament, Jesus himself is the tabernacle of God. Jesus takes, the Son takes flesh and dwells among us, tabernacles among us. And this is Jesus, just like I add to myself the shoulder carrier. The Son of God, the eternal Son of God, who is uncreated, adds to himself in time the substance of a human being. True flesh, a human soul, just like you and I have, united in one person now. This is 
what many refer to as the humiliation of the son. Jesus' incarnation is great, grand, and wonderful, but we remember that this is the first step. Jesus taking flesh to himself, the son taking flesh, is the first step in his humiliation. Our catechism has a question, wherein does Christ's humiliation consist? And the answer begins with, his humiliation consisted in being born. And that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the cursed death of the cross, the wrath of God, in being buried and remaining under the power of death for a time. The the incarnation of the Son is the first step in humiliation. Now, imagine if you would, if you're in the military or were in the military, imagine ripping off your rank and putting on the lowest rank. If you're in the corporate world, imagine taking the lowest position in your company. Or imagine going back seven or eight or 10 grades in school. How would that make you feel? Now, some of you might be like, well, I have a lot less responsibility. That homework would be easy, right? (laughs) But not the reduction in workload, but the reduction in rank. Once again, that is a measurable reduction. This is an immeasurable reduction from infinite, eternal Son of God to take to himself created flesh. And so I want you to have an adoration, an appreciation for the incarnation, this immeasurable reduction in rank, that because he is the very Son of God, by nature God, This reduction, this humiliation makes him more lovely. And actually, it was interesting. uh, Cyril of Alexandria in the 400s, he was writing and saying that the fact that it is the son of God, God in nature, who takes to himself flesh, it magnifies his love. He basically says, you know, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. If this is talking about a created being, that God exchanges a creature for a creature, that actually is a diminishment of his love. And so the importance of understanding that Jesus is himself God in very nature, not just gets the understanding of his person and his nature right, it gets the understanding of God's love right. Because it wasn't simply a creature for a creature. This is God himself. And that magnifies our understanding of God's love. And it wasn't simply a created being that he gives for us. It is his very self in the incarnation. The other thing I want you to remember is your identity with the Son in his incarnation. And what I mean is your identity with his humiliation. Never forget this. As goes the king, so goes the citizens of the kingdom. Just as Christ, the light of the world, you know, came into the world, but his own people did not receive him. John 3, men love darkness rather than light. Jesus says, if they hated me, they will hate you. Remember that in Jesus' humiliation, you follow the same path. We too are called to, to, what did Jesus say? To pick up your cross, your instrument of death, 
and follow me. You have an identity with Christ, even in his humiliation that we're called to. Now, John in verses 1 to 18, he's not only getting at what is the nature of the Son, what is the nature of the incarnation, but he gets at the nature of salvation. It extends to people who reject him. Verse 10, he was in the world, the world was made through him, made through the Son, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, his own people did not receive him. That salvation is extended to godless rejectors just like us, just like we were. The nature of salvation results in adoption. But to, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who did believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The other thing about the nature of salvation is that it is not by birth or pedigree. You know, as Jesus is speaking to people who really admire being descendants of Abraham, John is reminding them, it's not of blood. It's not of your personal desire or will. It's God who gives the new birth to the heart. This is the nature of salvation. It extends to people who reject him. It results in adoption. It's not by birth or by desire, but by the will of God. Now, oh, who is it? Elvis Presley, that's right. Ah, the great theologian, Elvis Presley. Singing that song that I hear, you know, every Christmas, and I, I, this one line caught me like it never caught me before. Santa knows that we're God's children, and that makes everything right. Santa knows that we're God's children. Now, that is the theology of the world that gives palliative care. We're all God's children. That is not Christian theology. What does John say Christian theology is? To all those who receive him, Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God. Elsewhere in the scriptures, as Paul mentions in Ephesians, we were by nature children of wrath. But to all who believe in Jesus, those are children of God. Not because of anything so great in the children. It's not by the will of man or blood by the will of God, who places Christ's righteousness upon his children. What else do we see about the nature of salvation in these verses? 14 and 16, it is by grace. Verse 14 at the end, full of grace and truth. I might've mentioned this before. Grace gets thrown around a whole lot by Christians. Rightfully so, but we forget the meaning of it. What does grace mean? Unmerited favor. If you want to just remember the definition of grace, unmerited favor. Because we have merited, what we've merited is death. As you see, the nature of salvation, John contrasts the law with grace. He says it in verse 17. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, there's nothing wrong with the law. There's nothing bad about the law of God. But the problem with it is that all it can do for us is show us our sin and condemn us to show us how we've fallen short. And so we need unmerited favor. 
If we were to get merited favor through the law, then it would require our obedience to the law to be saved. But John contrasts the law, which brings death with grace, unmerited favor, which brings life. We have a need of unmerited favor, don't we? Because what do we have? We have a messy room full of clutter that needs the light turned on, and we need unmerited favor because what we've merited is death because of the mess in our room. Even if you could stop making a mess in your room, you've still got the problem of the mess that needs to be cleaned up. Even if you could stop sinning, which you can't, but even if you could, you still have the penalty of all the sins that you've committed. Not only that, you have Adam's own sin. Even if you didn't have any personal sin of your own, Adam's sin placed upon your account is enough to condemn you. And and Paul contrasts Jesus with Adam, just as in Adam all die, so in Christ all live. Just as Adam's sin is enough to condemn you, being in Christ is enough to save you. As a result of belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, we become children of God. Someone used this analogy before, I forget who, but you move from the courtroom of the law, of being condemned under the law, as Jesus comes up to be our advocate and say, I take the penalty for this sinner, we move from the courtroom to the living room. And our relationship with God for the rest of our life is in the living room with God and no longer in the courtroom. I mean, could you imagine if one of your children came to you and and asked for forgiveness, would you ever turn them away? Absolutely not. You would never. How much more God will never turn away those who are in the living room with him. John Piper said, the gospel is not a picture of adoption. Adoption is a picture of the gospel. And this comes to us because of a substitutionary death on the cross by one who is of our same nature, both God in nature, but also human in nature, our elder brother, as it were. Brian Chapel, a PCA pastor, tells a story of his hometown, probably a story that I'll never forget, but I wanted to make sure to give him credit because it is, to me, a very powerful illustration of this very thing. In his hometown, there's a river, and because the town re- Uh, depends upon the river for commerce, dredges have to dredge up the sand and clear the channel. And the way this works, there's a reason why I'm explaining how this works, trust me. (laughs) Dredges pick up the sand in the channel of the river and then deposit it on the riverbank. So all this sand gets deposited on the riverbank. Well, what can happen is, as the sun bakes that sand, the exterior can have a nicely dried crust while the interior can become cavernous because of the water and sand that, can, that try to escape and go back down slope. So what this does is create a very dangerous hill for little boys to play on. Because what can happen is they go up on that hill, fall in, and then they've fallen into the cavernous hole and the rest of the sand rushes in on top of them. And this is exactly what happened to two boys in his hometown. Uh, at what period, I don't know. But these two boys, two brothers, fell in 
And after they didn't come home for dinner, the search party is out. They finally find one of the boys with his head and his shoulders above the sand. He's unconscious and they're digging him out, digging him out. They get to his waist. He finally wakes up after they get to his waist. Where is your brother? And he says, I'm standing on his shoulders. This is what Jesus Christ does for us as our elder brother. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's from Hebrews 2. He becomes a propitiation, a satisfactory sacrifice to God on our behalf. The Son of God was incarnate as our elder brother to die for sinners so that sinners might become child's children of God. Let's pray. Our God, as we consider your very nature, the nature of the incarnation, the nature of salvation, we are struck with awe and wonder at your incomprehensibility, at your love, at your mercy and grace, and at the great sacrifice of Jesus himself. Lord, would you comfort us with the comfort that comes for being a child of God, united to him in faith? And would you call people to yourself? Would you enable them to see that there is no other way to the Father but through Jesus, on whose shoulders we stand? In his name we pray, amen.